On the show today, the problem with trolleys, Chuck Norris's favorite class, and this bone's for you in three, two, one. Alex, do you feel that chill in the air? Yeah, it's been raining pretty hard. Yeah, and right down your back, shivers down your spine. You might want to get the roof fixed, is what I'm saying. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> so to all of the people out there who have similar kind of roof problems, hi, uh, welcome to Total Pebble Knockdown, I am Nathan. I am Alex. Thank you for joining us on the show today. We're going to have one Heck of a time. Woo. So, we're actually starting things off with something that isn't particularly scary. Unless you like existentialism, I don't know. We're gonna do a crit think. I've been thinking about this for a little while, Alex. When we're playing games, right, there's a lot of uh, moral choices you might have to make. Uh, a lot of things your character might be confronted with. Uh, most recently, I was playing, like, Let's uh, Build a Zoo, where they ask you these really absurdist sort of uh, questions about, like, hey, we found this stray dog. Would you like to put up some money so we can find the dog's owner? owner? Or would you like to dress it up like a little lion and have it walk around to promote the zoo? <laughs> And these are obviously you want to dress it up and make it promote the zoo. <laughs> See, that's technically the bad, the bad thing. You don't want to do that. <laughs> but oh. who knew? I didn't know uh, you had moral quandaries in a zoo game. Yeah, I didn't either. And then it gets kind of absurd. My favorite one that I encountered was this group that was worried about uh, animal testing. And so they said, we know, we have a way that we can do it. All you need to do is round up some of your zoo patrons and we'll test on the humans instead. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know how to feel about that. That kind of brings me back to the trolley problem, where it is a little bit more existential about what the choice you make does and why you would make that choice. Can you explain the trolley problem? Is that what you're about to do? Sorry. That's what, I, that's what I was going to do, but I was really just wondering if you are familiar with it to start. Yes. Okay. So, the trolley t problem, in its most basic form, is that uh, you have a trolley that is headed toward a track, and there are five people tied to the track, and you are standing a little ways away with a lever, and if you pull the lever... The trolley will veer away from that track with the five people on it, but it is now going to hurtle toward another person that is on the other track. So the question then becomes, do I flip the switch? Alex, out of curiosity in that scenario, do you flip the switch? I, uh, I walk away and leave it to chaos. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Listen, I just live in a superposition state, like Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> the, the switch is flipped or not switched until you check on it. Okay. So, so, so here's the thing. 
you basically would be taking what would be referred to as the deontological uh, stance by not flipping the switch. If it were me, I probably would flip the switch, and that would be considered utilitarian. So you're probably wondering what all of that is. So I'll yeah, try those to are big words for this show, Nathan. Okay, so <laughs> I know we're getting really heady on this one, but I think it's important to understand this before I get into my own trolley problems that I wanted to give you. So utilitarianism is basically the belief that the best actions are those that result in the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So basically, I will sacrifice one person over here if it means I save five others because I am maximizing good things and minimizing bad things. Deontologicalism is the idea that argues that an action is inherently right or wrong regardless of consequences. So if you take an action and you cause harm because of that, it is inherently wrong to do that. Because you're causing something bad to happen, even if you're preventing something else. That's basically the difference between two different schools of thought and how it relates to the trolley problem. There have been, as you might know, a lot of other versions of the trolley problem. Do I throw the virgin into the volcano to appease the gods, or do I let the volcano erupt and kill hundreds of people? Exactly! What are we supposed to do with that idea? What are we What are we doing with the absurd trolley problem that I happened to find? One of them was, a trolley is headed toward five lobsters. You can pull the lever to divert it onto the tr another track, running over a cat instead. What do you do? Do you sacrifice the five lobsters or the one- Well, yeah, I sacrifice the five lobsters because then I'm gonna have a fucking meal. <laughs> I'm gonna get to eat lobster, and I'm also gonna and save eat the, the cat. cat. But then, it's frowned upon eating the cat. But you see, the, the thing that no one tells you is that the cat just goes and eats the lobsters after the run over anyway, so you don't get the meal either. Well, and then, then I kill the cat, because it's still lobster. <laughs> that shit's expensive. <laughs> and then, no cats were harmed in the making, in the making of, this of this video, or this, this stupid philosophical problem. But then my favorite one is where they said D&D uh, &D players solving a problem, and it's the D&D &D players just connecting the one line to the other line. <laughs> so the trolley just runs over everything. We've established what the trolley problem is and the different philosophical schools of thought. Okay, Alex, yes. You know, Final Fantasy players suplex the trolley. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also works. So, I have three that I thought up, and someone might have thought of these before, but I didn't reference anything when I came up with these. So, I have three versions of this problem that I want to toss by you to see what you'd want to do. these related to, like, tabletop RPGs at all? They could be. Okay. <laughs> Relate them to a tabletop game. Make it more on brand. Okay, fine. <clears throat> uh, a trolley is running sword peasants. How about that? The peasants are on the track, and you as the hero have to determine whether you're flipping the switch or not. See? I made it work. Okay. This I thought was really interesting because it's going to test the utilitarianist out in all of us. So it's the same trolley problem that we had before. Flip a switch and, and go to one track to another. However, there is now only one person on each of those tracks. So there's one person on the main track and there's one person on the other track. Okay, now do you flip the switch? Do I know anything about these people? Yes, one of them is named Jim and the other one is named Tim. They are brothers. And they are very sad that their brother is tied to the other track. And they don't want their brother to die and watch their brother die. So, it's going toward Jim right now. You can veer off and go to Tim. 
Which one's got more money? They're, Can I take a life insurance claim out really quickly? They're farmers in a crop sharing community. They have the same amount of money. <laughs> well, see, there's. it doesn't matter what you do here then, because again, for the, um, the good of everyone, there's no difference in one or the other, potentially at this point. And the other school of thought is the fact that Again, there's no inherent good or evil action here. They're both equally as relevant to which one you choose. Now, the sure. utilitarian would say that you're choosing... Also, I think, would have the same outcome, where if you choose to do it, you're still doing the same thing. You're not sacrificing one for the many. You're sacrificing right. one for the one, which is just equality. Uh, it sorts itself out as being on par. I'm thinking that the, the one difference is mostly how you as the person that is in control of the situation, is going to feel about your action or inaction in being able to save or sacrifice somebody. And I suppose the problem would be that you would have to determine if you really like Jim or Tim. What if I don't like either one of them? Well, we could do that D&D uh, method where we just connect the tracks and just run over Perfect. both of them for the insurance money. Yeah, yeah, for the insurance company. Could I just, like, let the train run one over and then be uh, shoot, sorry, the train's coming at you, and then kill the- And then- If I'm the murder hobo? If you're the murder yeah, hobo? I mean- Well, okay, under the framing of the murder hobo, the trolley problem takes on a whole other dynamic, doesn't it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but there are 20 peasants tied to the track. And perfect. And on this other one, there's one noble. Which do you sacrifice? Well, the peasants, obviously. Yeah, exactly. The peasants. And then you just have the noble give you uh, a prize. For yeah, be like, I, I saved life. Give me money or you're next. Give me, give me money or, hey, there's no one to help you now. Um, okay, so... Uh, next it, trolley arrives in 30 minutes. I've already flipped a switch. Already flipped a switch. Sorry. My next variation on the trolley problem. Same thing as before. Five people tied to the one track, one person tied. So, basic trolley problem. Sure. You're in front of the switch. Here's the catch. You can't see the intersection. Well, then I can't so see you, the switch. Oh, you can see the switch. You're, you have the switch. But the actual intersection is covered, so you don't know what track it is currently headed toward. Oh, so now we're playing a um, what's behind door number one. Yes, basically now we are doing the Price is Right. Is it behind now we're doing door number one or door number two? So now we turn the trolley problem into a Monty Hall problem. Exactly. Now and we have an I issue. already see. I already know the answer to this. Should be that you flipped a switch. In that okay. Case. Because the Monty Hall problem, uh, I believe the research and the the looking into that comes out to being that like two-thirds of the time you should have like done the thing like when they ask you if you want to change your answer your answer is yes okay okay like like 75 percent of the time okay i'm making these numbers up i don't remember the actual number you're it's, okay it's, so so, so a significant portion yeah. of the time you should change your answer Oh, is that based on data of, like, what Monty Hall, when Monty Hall would ask if you wanted to change your answer on Let's Make a Deal? Yes, Monty Hall is based on Monty Hall. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I remember, Let's Make a Deal. So, Monty Hall then kind of, if, if Monty Hall goes, are you sure you want to do that, or do you want to change your answer, that you should always change your answer, because he's, he's inherently, like, he's I, trying I to tell you. No, it's like, he'll do that no matter what, right? I'd have to look it up again. It's been a while since I saw it. Uh. But essentially, it comes down to, like, like changing your answer gives you a 
proportionately better chance. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So in this case, you're you're relating this trolley problem to that, where changing my answer allegedly should give me significant better chances of sure not killing as many people. Yeah. I mean, again, these are situations where you have to do it and you can't just walk away. So Right. The um the thing that I find interesting is that, uh, like, I keep thinking deontolo- uh, deontology has a really good idea set here because deontology just basically would do exactly the same thing in all of these scenarios and just walk away, realizing that there's really nothing that they can do that will will create a good outcome, so to speak, for everybody. Uh, utilitarians are going to have a little bit of a hard time because you might accidentally end up creating far more harm than good. What if I'm a villain? What if I'm in the school of villainy? Oh, well, then uh, you find two tracks so that you can have two trolleys go down. You hope that there's two trolleys, and you can have the one go, and then flip the switch, and have the other one go. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, when it becomes you being the villain, all of these trolley problems become really moot points, right? When I've I become the villain, I'm the one who tied them to the tracks. You tied them to the tracks in the first place. Yeah, I always thought that that was the silliest thing about this. It's like, who's tying all these people to these tracks? And can we hunt them down and bring them to justice? Like, there should be an RPG quest where you just find the people that are tying the people down to the trolley tracks and you... And you have to bring them to just, and you tie them to the tracks, and you framework have... for a quest. Yes, it's a you come across five corpses tied to a uh, set of tracks, mm-hmm. and then a live person tied to another track. Yeah, and they tell you this person tied me to the tracks and the other <laughs> people, and then their accomplice, you know, was over there at the switch thing, and ran off. So you got to track down the accomplice who flipped a switch, or didn't flip the switch. You hunt them down, question them, find out who put them up to it, and then hunt down the guy that put them on the track. Yep. <laughs> I've got a three-part quest right there. Yeah, that's perfect. We could make a whole campaign out of this scenario. The trolley quest. <laughs> trolley the quest. The thing you're wondering throughout the entire campaign is, where did all these tracks come from? Trains haven't been invented yet. Oh my god, I just had a great idea. I had a great idea. We get it. We make a tile laying game. It's called Trolley Quest, and oh, every God. every person takes a piece of track that they pull randomly from the thing and put it down and try to avoid hitting all of the people that are on the board. So this is like that <laughs> one game we played that I don't remember. Suro. I bet Suro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like Suro, except your trolleys, and you have to avoid hitting like the three people that you've randomly placed on the tracks. And get to the station. You have to. There's like a station, and there's like several people around the tracks, and you can determine how many people. And you have to just stop, not hit any of them by putting your, tra- and not run off the board either. All right, this is easy. We were gonna basically take uh, zero, and we're gonna <laughs> modify it and make two different versions of this game. Yeah. When you hit a, when you hit someone on the tracks. Yeah. You you are out instead of hitting the edge of the game board. Sure. Yeah. And the other version is the person who racks up the most kills. <laughs> we call those GTA rules. <laughs> yeah, we call yeah. that vigilante. Yeah. Exactly. San Andreas. Um. <laughs> um, but yeah, we can call it, tro- call it Trolley Quest. And since you can't, uh, you know, trademark tabletop game rule sets and mechanics like that, this is pretty easy to do. Yes. 
Anyone who okay. wants to uh, help us make this game or thinks we should, let us know in the comments or We're, on the Discord. There, there's Trolley Quest is incoming, folks. This is going to be great. There's so many people that were fans of The Good Place that are going to want to get in on this. I got one more for you, and I'm very proud of this one. Oh, no. Okay, so... I'm prepped. I'm ready. Okay, so back to the trolley. Trolley's coming along a track. Now, there is only one track. There are five people tied to it, Okay. Trolley's coming towards them. However, you have a plunger in front of you. If you pull the plunger down, you blow up the trolley and save the five people that are on the track. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I didn't tell you, and there's no way for you to know how many people are on the trolley currently. <laughs> so, do you blow up the trolley? <laughs> Well, well, now you're just getting into Fantasy Land where I get to blow up a train. And, <laughs> and when, when am I ever going to be able to blow up a train? <laughs> this is the only time. This that is that I'm going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, the thing about it is, is that this isn't even like the Great Train robbery. Like, because like there's nothing to rob after you blow up the blow up the trolley. So you, what you didn't tell me is if I blow up the train, one of the pieces of shrapnel lands on all five people and murders them. <laughs> yes, this is the this is the little catch. Or and this is what gets it even better: if they end up running over the five people, that actually slows the trolley down, so you can now rob the trolley. Now it's a little harder, isn't it? <laughs> Are we doing this villain rules or just? Let's start with the we're not horrible people rules. and Because if we're going with the we're horrible people rules, I let the train run the people over and then blow... If we're going with terrible people like like the evil points in Fable, you let the people get run over, you hope that it derails the trolley, and then you rob the trolley. And murder everyone on it. Got it. You gotta... Yeah, I mean, you gotta take everybody out. But if we were saying we're the good guys, and we're doing, like, D&D uh, adventuring party... Trying to be like the nobles, doing the good things. I cast Fireball at the train. Okay. I cast Entangle on the train. Oh, trust me. The way I would deal with this as Max would be just plant growth immediately on everything. <laughs> Slow the trolley down, and then you could just take the people off the tracks. I mean... You wouldn't just uh, thunder wave it and knock the train off the tracks? Well, then people on the trolley could get hurt. You know yeah, from the train derailing. Yeah, from the train derailing. That's perfect. Oh, you could just cast sleep. Haste. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Haste. Slow. You should cast slow. Just uh, on the... There you go. I don't think that works on mechanical objects, though. It might Who work. knows? Who knows? If you can suplex a train, you can cast slow on a train. That's fair. Anyway, did we determine... Are we pulling... Are we doing the plunger? Are we... Yeah, I'm blowing up the train every okay. single time. Okay, you're blowing up the train every single time. It's full of 200 cattle. Now we have steak. And they're already flambé. Yeah, and they're already uh, tenderized quite well. Oh, very good. Excellent. Chicken fried steak for everybody. And we have friends to share it with that we rescue from the track. So, hey, it all works out great. Terrific. Alex, your thoughts on the trolley problem? Irrational. We don't use trolleys anymore except for San Francisco. But let's say it was just a train, because I have a feeling that train tracks work just as well as trolley tracks. I think that it's just sort of irrational because it goes back to that whole idea of like the Wild West and when they would tie people to the tracks and you had to and rescue you got them. Dun, 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 piano music going. Yeah, and then Snidely Whiplash comes out and goes, I'm going to tie people to the train tracks. And you wonder why. 
like, why would you do that? The only reason why the trolley problem really exists is to just give you a philosophical conundrum to try and solve about what a moral choice is. <laughs> I mean, I guess in that regard, you could just turn it into anything where you're trying to sacrifice, like, one person to save five or whatever. As I said, throw a virgin into a volcano or yeah. let the whole town get destroyed. Yeah. Perfect. And then you have to wonder about, do they mean a virgin one way or another way? Generally speaking, that meant somebody of pure blood. Yeah, then you have to make sure that you're interpreting the god's will correctly. Yeah. Why did you throw this 16-year-old girl into the volcano? That's not what I meant. Yeah, no, that's not what I meant by virgin. Oh, you thought I said virgin? No, I said vegan. I wanted you to throw a vegan into the volcano. To be fair... You can easily identify the vegan shut up about it. That's true. <laughs> just, just hitting be like vegans too. Yeah, Don't yeah. throw them into your local volcano. No. If you have a volcano nearby, be kind. The crit think that I'm going to pass out to everybody is, what is your favorite trolley problem? Please let us know in the description down below. We have another, mechanically speaking, about yet another expert class for the uh, 1D&D test material. Aren't you excited? Hooray! Let's get testing. This is Aperture Science. It is a triumph. Making a note here, huge success. The one that we're doing this week, though, is the Ranger. Now, Alex, maybe you can explain a little bit about the Ranger to me, because I've never played one, and I... Well, no, that's not fair. I did play one briefly uh, when we did that uh, Crypt uh, Hawk. Yeah, but that was not 5e. No, that was 3.5. So the rules have changed considerably from 3.5 to 5, and a lot of people have kind of said that the Ranger suffered a lot when it got to 5e. Uh, just because of not being able to fit into any particular niche. They were compared kind to... of underpowered, and then I think they might have gotten, like, overpowered to compensate for it. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I think that they made some subclasses, like the Swarm Master, I think, at one point, where mm. they, they tried to make them a little bit better. Uh, but in one d d you can see that they've actually tried to improve the situation a little bit by really giving them stuff to do. Uh, you had mentioned to me once that the general purpose of a ranger is to kind of, like, find an enemy and then try to continually nail on that enemy over and over again. Yeah, generally speaking, they're kind of a, their, their skill set is for tracking mm -hmm. and hunting. Yes. And then... Um, like, identifying specific targets and eliminating them as per, like, favorite enemies, as per, like, Hunter's Mark. Um, so they're really kind of great at, like, specific groups of uh, creatures. Um, if you are a hunter with a favorite enemy, you're better at that thing. So a campaign focused on, like, again, if you were to be like, all right, uh, my favorite enemy is, like, undead. And then you could have an undead hunter as a ranger, and that could be a concept. Mm. Um, but they also have, like, Colossus Slayer against fighting larger monsters. It's kind of like Legolas yeah. from Lord of the Rings. It's either mm -hmm. you're good at killing lots of things, or you're good at killing big things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, 
there's a few basic, I'll just give you a little bit of an overview of what they did with rangers. Uh, so, couple things, like, casting spells now starts at level 1 instead of 2. Uh, that's not a big change, but no. I guess that's fine. Rangers no. don't typically, they are kind of like paladins, Yeah, they're not a full spellcaster. Yes. Because they're typically a lot better in martial or, in the ranger's case, ranged combat as well. Sure. So they get a better attack bonus mm-hmm. or proficiency and stuff like that than, say, a dedicated caster would. Right. You only get up to, like, level five spells before right. the end. Unless they changed that, but I doubt it. No, they didn't. I can tell you that you, at, like, 20th level, will have, like, two fifth-level spell slots, and that's yeah. that's you, the, they're, the top. They're good, but... Yeah, and I think you're being. I think that they're gonna have you pulling from the primal spell list, and there's some there's yes. some good good ones in there. Um, a lot of what they've changed is giving you subclass features and ability increases sooner uh, in in lower and lower levels. But there are a few little abilities that they've added in, like Nature's Veil and Roving. I'll get into a little bit of that right now. First level. Favorite enemy. Oh, yeah. Favorite enemy has changed a little bit. They've improved it. So you are adept at focusing your ire on a single foe. You always have Hunter's Mark prepared. It does not count against the number of spells you can prepare. Moreover, you don't have to concentrate on it once you cast it. It lasts for a full duration until uh, until you end it as a bonus action or until you are incapacitated. So you don't have to concentrate on it. It's always prepared, so you always have it available to you. Now, is this part of favorite enemy, or is this separate? Because you said favorite enemy. This is under favorite enemy. This is how favorite enemy works. I think the language you need to add to that is when using Hunter's Mark on a favorite enemy. Right. Because if it's part of favorite enemy, then it sounds like it's for just specifically those favorite enemies right it is now it is essentially for everything yes but yeah if you wanted to use it as its own spell prepared then you could still do that for other enemies is it is what i'm assuming okay yeah then for anything like again if your favorite enemy is undead you can just be like ah yes favorite enemy and it would still use a spell slot i assume as well right even though if it didn't that would be really cool yeah, I mean, it sounds like the way that they're doing this is instead of choosing a specific kind of class for favorite enemy, it's just like, you just choose any kind of foe, and you can put Hunter's Mark on any kind of foe that you have in front of you. But we'll see. I, uh, we're, we're early in. Let's see if this is addressed. Sure, okay. We're early in. You get expertise in two skills. Um, expert classes are basically doing this thing where periodically they get expertise at several levels where they get to gain expertise in two skill proficiencies of their choice. Um, sure. If tracking was still a skill, then... Yeah, they suggest for rangers stealth and survival. Yeah, or, or maybe um, knowledge and nature. Well, there isn't really knowledge, but maybe insight or history. Oh history maybe maybe uh that's right knowledge nature is just kind of like part of survival now there there is a nature uh skill though nature oh, is nature yeah yeah nature. 
first level, you get spell casting. You have the following spells prepared out of the mark. You have Cure Wounds, Guidance, Hunter's Mark, and Thorn Whip. That's a pretty good initial spell list right there. I mean, Thorn Whip is really good. Yeah, but I mean, Hunter's Mark, that's always useful. Cure Wounds is always a banger. And then Guidance. Guidance you can never go wrong with. I mean, <laughs> you also really never use it. No, you you don't, but... These are all first level spells. No, these no, are all cantrips. Uh, Cure Wounds is a first level, and Hunter's Mark, I believe, is a first level, but Guidance is a cantrip. So is Thorn Whip. Thorn Whip, yeah, yeah. And I, but that's, that's new then, because Hunters, or Rangers, rather, before, uh, didn't get cantrip. Just as a general rule, though, uh, whenever you can cast Guidance, you're probably wise to do that. Alternatively, you can prepare two zero-level spells and two first-level spells of your choice. So, also, I guess if you just say, I don't want to do that, you can go to the primal spell list and you can just say, screw it. You just can't use the school, uh, you, it can be for any school of magic except evocation. Can't use okay. evocation spells. that makes sense. Primal doesn't really evocate. Yeah, and there's not a whole lot on the primal spell list that does, but... Whenever you finish a long rest, you can commune with nature and replace spells. The spell slots are shown on this handy-dandy little table. And so, yeah, at first level, you'll have two cantrips and two first-level spells. By the time you get to level 20, you'll have three cantrips, and then you'll have, like, two fifth-level spells. and pretty much. I like that you gain one cantrip. Yeah, to tell you how they are definitely a half-caster. Because I think a, I think a bard has like five. Yeah, but I mean you only need a few, and especially if you can swap them out. Yeah. Whenever you rest. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah, especially that you can do that now. Second level. So fighting style. You have honed your martial prowess. You gain one of the fighting styles. So archery, defense, two weapon. Pretty straightforward. Third level, you get a ranger subclass. They're, we're going to go over hunter in a minute, which is the one that they have in here. Feet score at 4th, extra attack at 5th, so you still get that. Another subclass or feature at 6th now. Another subclass or feature? No, a, another subclass feature oh, okay. of, uh, at 6th. What I mean is, I think that originally it was like 7th or 8th level. Yeah, it was a little that. further along. They're pushing all of that up, I think, because your 20th level abilities are now like 18th level abilities. <laughs> Yeah. And so, which means instead of going to level twenty, you just take two levels and something. Else. Yeah, exactly. If you don't want to get the epic boon at twentieth, that's fine. Seventh, we have a new ability called roving. So in roving, your speed increases by ten feet while you aren't wearing heavy armor, and you also have a climb speed and a swim speed equal to your speed. Nice. I do like that actually. Yeah. Um. That works, too, because typically rangers are medium armor at most. Sure. <clears throat> you can you can train to wear heavy armor, obviously, but yeah, they're kind some... of one of those classes where mobility is important. Yeah, you can always train in heavy armor, but there really isn't much reason to for especially dexterity classes. I, I don't see much reason to. Yeah, I did have my druid wearing a heavy armor uh, when I played my druid. It just has to be not made of metal. And if it is made of metal, I got a spell for that. Yeah, uh, ironwood. No heat metal. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> no, his armor was made of a, a carapace. Oh, oh, like a, a chitin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some monster we killed. Perfect. I should have remembered Even that when I did the pancakes. 
Yeah, yeah I gave him some fire resistance. Pretty cool. Actually, that would have been a much better use of, like, the Queen uh, Ankeg that we fought. I could have tried to make some armor out of that. Might have had, like, poison resistance or acid. Probably acid resistance, if anything. Mm, who knows? Anyways. Okay, so. What's next on the ranger? All right, so next few levels are pretty straightforward. Eighth, you get a new feat. Ninth, you get expertise again. Tenth, you get your other subclass feature. Eleventh, new one, tireless. Primal forces now help fuel you on your journeys, granting you the following abilities. Okay, Temporary hit points. Whenever you finish a short rest or a long rest, you can give yourself a number of temporary hit points equal to 1d8 plus your proficiency bonus. Okay, that's not that much. It's not that much. Uh, you also get the benefit. Decrease exhaustion. If you are exhausted when you finish a short rest, your level of exhaustion decreases by 1. Okay, that's nice if you get exhausted. Yeah, it might actually make people um, engage with that particular system, because I don't think I've ever really encountered it myself. If you're not doing things that are strenuous or long-term, you don't really encounter it too often. Thirteenth, Nature's Veil. You invoke spirits of nature to magically hide yourself from view. As a bonus action, you can expend a spell slot and become invisible until the end of your next turn. So okay. stealth. It's a stealthy thing. Stealth for a spell. Yeah, as a bonus action. So that's fun. Oh, that's not bad. At, you expend a spell slot, but it's a bonus action, so... Mm -hmm. And I think you can expend any kind of spell slot for it. Um, let's see. Subclass feature again at 14th. 15th, you're going to get Feral Senses. So, your connection to the forces of nature grants you blind sight with a range of 30 feet. That's not bad, especially when you go cave diving and nobody has light. <laughs> I mean, if you've got dark vision, that's fine, too, but this means you can not have any vision. It can even be darker than dark, and you're yeah. still good. <laughs> uh, un unnatural darkness. Unnaturally so. Um, okay, 16th is another feat. Uh, 18th, Foe Slayer. Your Hunter's Mark now deals an extra 1d10 damage rather than the extra 1d6. Nice. So there's that. 19th, you have a feat again, and then at 20th, you get the Epic Boon. Okay. Nice. So there's the basics. Uh, couple, and, a couple nice things. I don't yeah. see anything really too weird aside the Hunter's Mark wording for favorite enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I hope they just clear up. Yeah, I don't know if they really uh, explain anything about that. Like, it doesn't look like they have any information about Hunter's Mark outside of that. Um, oh, is favorite enemy only something you get at first level and you don't gain it to it now later on? No, it's just the first level thing and I haven't seen anything else about it. Well, we'll talk about the subclass because they have Hunter in here. And mm -hmm. I think Hunter's Mark does come into play here, so I'll tell you a little bit about the Hunter subclass. Sure. Okay. Because um, typically uh, for Rangers before, you'd gain it at first level and then you'd gain another improved or you can take it for another... And like up to three maybe but typically it would be used as pick a uh type of creature or like yes group of creatures so it's like if you went with humanoids you'd have to pick a subclass of humanoids so goblins or goblinoid yeah exactly they... but if you went with like you could do like magical beasts or aberrations or you know something like that or dragons fey whatever you generally you'd pick that and you'd be better at that specific group but if the wording for this is as intended yes. for the new version, then I'm thinking you might be able to just, again, like you were saying, pick a favorite enemy 
in each combat, which would make it a lot useful overall. Yeah, there is nothing in here that I can see that specifies a type of enemy class. So it sounds like you just say, uh, Hunter's Mark, whatever this dude is over here, I don't have to concentrate on it, boom, your hunter, you're Hunter's Marked. You're yeah, in that case here. it would be more like a, a preferred enemy per combat kind of deal. I don't know. I guess so. I, yeah, it'll I be interesting to it. see what they get for feedback. Let me tell you a little bit about the hunter because I think it exploits that a little bit more. So hunter, okay, you stalk the prey in the wilds and elsewhere using your ability as a hunter to protect nature and people everywhere from forces that would destroy them. If I remember correctly, hunter was a pretty iconic subclass for the ranger. Uh, yeah, they're really good at tracking, really good at taking out specific enemies. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the features of this, because I think people are going to like this, actually. So third level, you get Hunter's Prey. Uh, your tenacity can wear down even the most resilient foes. When you hit a creature with a weapon or an unarmed strike as part of an attack action, the weapon or unarmed strike deals an extra 1d8 damage to the target if it's missing any of its hit points. You can deal this extra damage only once per turn. So this right. is this is separate too from like the hunter's mark thing. This is just yeah. So yeah, burst damage is um, basically high amounts of, of DPS or damage. Sure. In like a short window of time. Okay. So in this case, your bow attack with hunter's mark with uh, whatever that one is that you just said. The hunter's prey. Yeah. So hunter's mark and hunter's prey. So you go all right. Bow does D eight. Hunter's mark does D six, and hunter's prey is another D eight. Right. So you've got a hunter, uh, subclass ranger, who is suddenly uh, doing 2d8 plus a d6. Right. Which is a lot of dice of damage. Right, and then when you get to your second attack, the great thing is is that even if you're first out of the gate and your first attack lands and you're able to take any kind of hit points away, you can use this for the second attack right. if that also hits. And right. so you can get. So then you'd be doing a D8 plus a D6 plus another D8 plus a D8 plus a D6 on your right. second attack. Right, exactly. So this gets this gets good. Um, mm -hmm. Sixth level, you get Hunter's Lore. This one I think you're going to enjoy. So you can call on the forces of nature to reveal certain strengths and weaknesses of your prey. While a creature is marked by your Hunter's Mark, you know whether that creature has any immunities, resistances, and vulnerabilities. And if the creature has any, you know what they are. Okay, that's that sounds really OP. Doesn't it? Because basically it forces your DM to tell you. Basically what it is is like the hunter just says, I want the DM's manual. <laughs> you just give me, so, give so me the monster does, manual. <laughs> is this ability like once per day? No, while a creature is marked by your hunter's mark. Or just while it's under hunter's mark? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, just keep Hunter <clears throat> marking everything and take notes. Yeah. So yeah, basically this is just the ranger saying, I have access to your notes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little OP maybe. What I think might work well for that, instead of making it so you get everything, all their immunities and resistances all at once and letting it be kinda, kinda very powerful for information sure. for your players, uh, is maybe if you were to roll and depending what you roll, you could uh, glean more information from it. So basically, at that point, trying to like make a nature roll or something like that because you yeah, have yeah, this mark. is kind of what the knowledge, nature, knowledge, arcane, sure. and whatnot were before. Is you could be like, hey, uh, that creature is uh, a beast or something from nature. I might know about it. I'm gonna make nature roll, 
and depending on your role, you could be like, all right, yeah, here's what you know about this creature. That might be uh, something that they nerf before the end of all of this. We'll see. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind that because I don't expect that an ability should be able to hand a monster's, you know, stats sure. like that. It's like, all right, here's its AC resistances, uh, immunity. Yeah. All that stuff. What it ate for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Its name is lineage. Its shit. Yeah, exactly. What friends like to call it at parties. <laughs> Let's just get into all of that. Uh, tenth level, multi-attack. You now always have conjure barrage prepared, and it doesn't nice. count against the number of spells you can prepare. You can also cast the spell with first and second level spell slots. When you do so, the spell's damage is reduced by one d8 for each slot level below third. So, it's a third level spell for Conjure But you Barrage. can cast it below its spell level? You can now downcast. I like that. Yeah, isn't that a neat idea? I like that. Because that's great. So, let's say if you get Fireball, I wonder if they'll be allowing you to, like, downcast that. Like, I just want to do Fireball with, like, a, a first level, but it only does, like, 2d8 or something. Yeah. Or, I would like to two, cast Fireball as a cantrip. Yeah, I just want to cast it as a cantrip. Uh, they're not saying you can do it with zero levels, so yeah, I guess there's yeah. that. But but I like the idea of, like, Fireball as a first level spell, and maybe it's, like, a 2d6 or a 3d6, and maybe you can and do that. And doesn't have quite the area, maybe? Yeah, maybe it reduces the area by 5 feet, 10 feet, something like that. That's an interesting idea. But anyway, Contra Barrage is really good anyway because it's like 3d8 damage and it's in a fairly, I think it's like, what, a 60-foot cone. Yeah, it's like a 60-foot cone now from you uh, hitting everybody if they uh, don't get a dex save. And then, okay, 14th level, you get Superior Hunter's Defense. When you are hit by an attack roll, you can use a reaction to have the attack's damage against yourself, and you can redirect the other half of the damage to one creature, other than the attacker, that you can see within five feet of yourself. Okay. <laughs> so then you're tanking as a ranger, and you go, hit me, and it hits you, and then you redirect damage to one of its minions. It's like when Aragorn, in, in the movie... Everyone always loves to talk about how, like, Viggo Mortensen, like, uh, knocked the dagger away with his sword and, like, swung up. Imagine that, but the dagger then goes into another orc that's over on the side. <laughs> that's what Superior Hunter's defense is. Oh, I hit you. Sorry, Grog. Oh, well. Yeah, you get, he brings down the sword to chop you and he hits you with it, but then the follow-through cleaves uh, the leg off. That's essentially what they're doing with the ranger. Your general thoughts? Um, I think it's interesting. I think it'll make it a lot more utility uh, in those ways. And as an expert class, it definitely seems like they're they're pulling into what they're good at. Sure. So yeah. the the range, the the specific like bigger foes, more damage, uh, exploiting vulnerabilities, and then um, being able to identify monsters. My perspective as being somebody who came into this very late, uh, the ranger always felt, at least in 5e, as not really knowing where they're supposed to be functionally in terms yeah. of other classes. And previous iterations of the ranger and the druid both had animal companions. Yes. So it's interesting to see that they're going away from that. I mean, it, maybe it's harder to manage a creature. Hmm. Um, but, I don't know, I don't know. I would like to see Animal Companions uh, make a bit of a comeback. 
Uh, I will have to see if Find Familiar is on the primal spell list or something to that effect. I, I Probably think it's an not arcane. Yeah. An arcane spell, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it, it wasn't a familiar for the ranger or druid. It's an animal companion. Right. Yeah, I think that the one thing I'm liking about the 1D&D rules that we've looked at is that, especially for the ranger there is a much more defined reason that they exist uh, and a function that they have. Uh, in 5e, I think people stayed away from the ranger because whatever you want the ranger to do, there was another class that did that specific thing better. If you wanted to do nature spells, why wouldn't you just be a druid? If you wanted right. to do fighting, why wouldn't you be one of, like, the martial classes specifically? You know, there. if you wanted to do stealth, why wouldn't you be a rogue? So now... Yeah. Now, with, like, Hunter's Mark and making it very clear that there's singular enemies that we focus on, that we learn about, that we track, uh, and kind of doing that for mobility and, and being able to hunt people down, I think that there's a lot more utility to a ranger, and even makes me think that it's a great class if you're in urban environments, too, where maybe... Yeah, urban trying, rangers can be really fun. Yeah, where you, like, oh, there's there's a villain on the loose, like, Jack the Ripper's on the loose. Well, now that's your enemy that you're tracking, and I'm going through the streets, and I'm jumping up onto buildings, and I am basically your Batman. Basically, you're Batman. Rangers are Batman, in this case. And you're tracking down the Joker. Um, so, yeah, uh, like, after that, uh, just generally for the 1D&D material, I think the expert classes are just very well defined here. Uh, I like some of the stuff that they give. Uh, being a bard person myself, I like what they did there. And I, I think that the rogue has just made some nominal changes, but they were pretty good to begin with. But I think the ranger has had the most overhaul and the biggest upgrade. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what else they do to the classes and their <laughs> subclasses do. Yes. Um, so hopefully we can get more information and maybe test it at some time ourselves. Who knows? Yeah, I'd like to, uh, I think I'm going to be more interested when they get into the, uh, the spellcasting classes and see how they're handled, because I did have a wizard that I was going to try to build in, uh, 1D&D, &D, uh, and I'd, I'd like to see how they, <laughs> if they screw that up or not. Yeah, <laughs> the, there you go. I hope not. Um, but yeah, so Ranger overall, I think, uh, probably the most dramatic change out of the three, really. Uh, and probably for the better. We'll, we'll see. see what everyone else thinks. I want some clarification on favorite enemy. Yes. Uh, otherwise, yeah, some of those changes seem pretty interesting. Maybe a little OP. We'll see what they do. Yeah, and we'll see what they actually stick with because, again, this is all just test material. So we'll, right. we'll see. Um, maybe, a, maybe a Beastmaster subclass would give you that animal companion. Yeah. I'll, well, I'll see. we'll see. Yeah. We are uh, continuing our Spoopfest here on the show. Our Spooptacular. Sorry, the Spooptacular. <laughs> the the mini-series. I made a tweet earlier. I said, we're doing a mini-series. The first one was zombies, and the second one's ghosts. And then the third one is going to be Skelly Boys. That's right, we're doing Spooky, skeletons. scary skeletons. I kept thinking to myself, like, what are we going to do? when we talk about skeletons, because honestly, they're kind of basic. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't even tell you, 
like famous like movie skeletons. Like I I can't think of any. Like would would the Pirates of the Caribbean skeletons count? Like I I don't I don't even know. Are they skeletons? They're like undead and like they're ghosts they're, or maybe they're zombie. They're undead of some kind. Well, they were like they looked alive during the day, right? Yes, they. they and they, then they, at night they looked under like, the moon glow. It had to be under you. the moonlight. Yeah, you, under the moonlight they they were looked undead, yeah. but they didn't look like skeletons. But they also weren't zombies. That's true. So the only kind of skeletons I can remember in like pop culture would be like the Jason and the Argonauts style like skeletons from way back when. I like I can't think of like the mummy obviously didn't have skeletons. No, like, it had mummies. It had mummies, right? And so like like there's no like famous like Jack Skellington is the most famous skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, we went over him last time. That's exactly right. And realistically, he's not what you think about when you think about skeletons. He's he's, he's I like mean, the pumpkin he is, king. He's not what you think about when you think of scary skeletons. Yeah, skeletons as monsters that you go into. And the thing about it is though is that when you look at the skeletons in 5e as comparison they're so boring they're like yeah. they're so boring they're d armor class 13 which is just armor scraps and they are immune to poison damage vulnerability to bludgeoning damage yeah. um mason stuff hurt them yeah they uh, they can't be exhausted or poisoned they have dark vision to 60 feet which i don't get they, they don't have eyes why would they have it's it's supernatural Okay. They can understand all languages that they knew in life, but they can't speak. And then all they really have, they have just two the, the actions. They have a short bow and a short sword. That's, that's so it. what what they needed to do in 5e mm. uh, for monsters like this is make them templates with this as the example, but they didn't really lay that out properly like they did in 3.5. Yeah, yeah. Probably 4, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you mentioned templates in the last one when we were talking about, like, ghosts, and yeah. I... Yeah. Yeah. So, the template would be you take a creature and you apply this template to it, and the template gives it abilities and stuff from the template. So, in this case, you'd have a skeleton template. Yes. And what that would do is it would give it the vulnerability bludgeoning, the uh, in, uh, immunities of being undead, like undead as a template, you know, and have immunity to poison, uh, the dark vision, uh, the ability to understand all its um, languages in new and life, uh, being unable to speak them probably. Mm -hmm. it, would, it would probably reduce certain intelligence a far amount. Sure, sure. Uh, what's the intelligence on the skeleton? Uh, intelligence is six. Yeah, it would reduce its intelligence a, a pretty far um, they wouldn't be able to spell cast unless they're really because you have to have like a minimum of eight spell cast. That would really be more um, like a lich at that point, or, right? Which yeah. is a more powerful undead. Oh yeah. Um. So what you do with the that then is then you can take any monster you want in the game and turn skeletonized version with the template. The fun thing would be is if you took like actual character classes like wizards or rangers or rogues or something and you made them skeletonized versions of that 
Sure. The issue with the wizard specifically is that they would Intelligence. not be able to cast their spells. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be very tricky to do that. But a lot of the other ones that like I mean even wisdom for them is a, like eight. So I don't know if spellcasters yeah. for skeletons are going to work. They, pr I mean, you could make a spell a uh, spellcaster and just have them have a few spells they still know. Yeah, I think that would make them more interesting. They could know a cantrip or two. Uh, yeah, one or two first level, second level spells, maybe. They're just not nearly as good as it, at it as they were when they were alive. <laughs> yeah. They're just, they just have a very, very low threshold for you to, be, like, do uh, resistance checks and stuff. Give them necromancy magic. I think, I think if we're trying to make skeletons spooky, yes. you give them necromantic abilities. Yes. Uh, you make them, uh, you know, bit necromancy abilities or, um, Abilities to poison you, or poison your blood, or, like, make you bleed. Or you can maybe say, uh, take a skeleton, instead of just being bones, maybe it's bones and then, like, flesh hanging sure. off the bones. Okay. Um, uh, Half-rotted skulls. So, here's a way that you might be able to make skeletons a little bit more... Uh, dangerous in a scenario. Let's go back to the village with like the false Hydra that we talked about once upon a time where like people fun. people get yeah people get influenced by the false Hydra. Okay well imagine if we had somebody that was maybe a necromancer and they lived in this town and they were systematically turning members of the town into the skeletons and then controlling them and so now these are not just skeletons but they're like literally Mia, the uh, bartender, is now a skeleton and still has her name tag on and everything. And but but is now is now like running the bar as a skeleton and and, and can understand you, but is under the control of a thrall uh, that's that's also in the town somewhere. So I have a better idea. Okay, what you do is you take control of their skeleton, razor skeleton, but it still has all the flesh and meat on. So now you've got an undead skeleton, except it's basically in in what you'd consider either a skin suit or skin armor. Perfect. And so the longer it's alive, the more it would get rotten. But while it's fresh, it still looks, you know, it would be like me. Right. Maybe I'm dead and this is just my animated skeleton still wearing my flesh. Oh, that's perfect. Yes. So what you, what you could do then is have, like... If you want to have some fun with that and make it kind of spookier, you have a town, but everyone's dead. Yes. But you don't know it because everybody looks normal. They just don't talk much. And, but they can still understand you. They're just not talking at all. Right. And so they're just kind of like nodding along. Or just Yeah. And maybe you discover that there's a necromancer. And then once you discover that, they become hostile and their flesh is dripping off them, rotting. Oh, holes sure. in them sure. you know maybe someone is hammering a, a board up and a hammer goes through their hand and they don't even feel that pain and like cutting off limbs and stuff isn't necessarily going to help much the funny the fun thing about skeletons too is that if they're working as a collective and like let's say oh i decapitate the skeleton and the skeleton's head goes flying another skeleton could come and pick the head back up and put it on top of the skeleton again and like reattach it and then say, let's keep going, bud. And then, like, 
like the never-ending army that you just can't kill as they all of a sudden with purpose start attacking you now that you've discovered that the necromancer or the lich or whatever happens to be in town is now controlling the entire town you could keep the uh the skin fresh too with like something like gentle repose or something like that you know yeah probably yeah to keep it like fresh so, so that you know they could hold on to it um, I think that, uh, yeah, Undead Skeletown is, uh, bad, bad news. Yeah, and then you basically have the council just being necromancers. Oh, yeah. Who are just keeping everything, and there's thralls. So you've got, like, a cult of necromancers. Oh, yeah. That have, this entire town died of whatever cause. Maybe it was a disease, or something killed the town. Carbon monoxide, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the necromancers and, did the plague. <laughs> yeah, and so the necromancers come in and they raise the whole town to make it lively again so they can still make... Maybe they're, like, trying to continue getting getting trade in town. Oh, sure. You know, they sure. still want to make money and have visitors. Yeah. So maybe they're, like, evil necromancers, or maybe they're super evil. Who fucking knows? Yeah. But I think that would be creepy because then suddenly the town... Everybody here is dead. They want travelers to come so that they have more people to turn into skeletons. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe there's an actual reason why they need to turn, kill people and turn them into skeletons. So, perhaps another way that you could make skeletons a bit more of a hassle and scary to deal with, for instance, uh, is make them harder to kill or be, only be able to die in a specific way. Okay. So, one of the Castlevania games I played on PlayStation 2, Castlevania Curse of Darkness. Yes. Um, you didn't play as the typical Castlevania protagonist uh, of a Belmont with the okay. whip. You played as a Devil Forge Master who used to be uh, one of Dracula's, like, people. And so there's a tower where we talked about battle towers before. Yep. And so you went up 50 floors and then you flew over to another tower and you went down 50 floors. And so on the second tower, there was a skeleton there called Bloody Bone. And this was a red skeleton, and when you did enough damage to kill it, it would break apart, and the bones would be suspended in midair. Hmm. And then after, like, 30 seconds, they would come back together. Okay, so how do you kill that? The one way you could kill this creature was with one of your companions, were called, were innocent devils. They were kind of like Pokemon. One of the mage builds you could get had a spell, I think, called Holy or something like that. And what that would do is occasionally it would cast that on Undead and just obliterate them. And so you'd have this guy out, and it would cast it, and that would kill the Bloody Bones. So you basically had to have this one creature out to cast a spell, and you had to fight it until it was pretty much dead, and then it would have to kill Otherwise, it would just keep coming back. Okay, yeah, so basically there's there's a specific killing blow in order to make this stick. Okay, right. I've, I've seen things like this before in games, uh, and, and, and it's always annoying as hell, and I don't like it. <laughs> okay, but imagine this in the context of a skeleton or group of skeletons in D&D. Okay, yeah, no, I am. This is going to get very, very tricky very quickly. So perhaps you do this and you kill the group of skeletons. Yes. And you're going about collecting some of the loot around there, and then the bones start rattling and collecting back into skeletons again. Okay, yes. Uh, so, okay, the way I'm seeing this is, so there's like a one or two turn gap between the bones shattering and the bones recollecting. 
and then in that time frame you have to like cast something with probably radiant damage or maybe fire something to that effect that has to be cast on that rattling bones to disperse them sure that or you have to have like a specific item that maybe it's whole a holy item or relic artifact depending okay. on your campaign yeah and you could do that so you may oh you have to have this chalice fill it up with water that then becomes holy water pour it over the bones yes i need to get a super i need to get a squirt gun full with the holy water that i just yeah. burned on everybody water yeah. arrows you need specific water arrows holy water arrows okay so i kind of see how we could do this where like maybe the council themselves uh are holding on to the specific chalice that they could use to diffuse the skeletons if they get out of line or something uh, and then you have to go and find that chalice first, because otherwise the skeletons will just never stop coming at you, and you only can just disperse them for a couple turns while they're just stationary before they recollect and then start coming towards you again. This is a kind of an upgraded version of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> this, is, this is very much that, but worse because you can never kill them. So that's an interesting way of looking at this. If we could make skeletons so that they're even more unkillable than zombies. I think that'd be not necessarily scary, more of a hassle, but also a little bit creepy because, <laughs> okay, suddenly these five skeletons that you've been fighting gonna come after you until you can kill them. So now I'm thinking about how we can elevate this a little bit, and I, th I think I can see how. So... You were talking about skeletons as, like, a, uh, being able to put them as a framework for other monsters and stuff like that. So, fun idea, is that the reason why the liches wanted to, you know, engage with this is to try and attract adventurers that would be able to go out and fight monsters. They need the mm. adventurers to go out and fight monsters and bring them back, because they want to then turn those monsters into skeletons. So, so it's to protect the town, essentially, and their interests. So all of a sudden, there's just a zombie, there's just a, a skeleton dragon or skeleton giants that are just around town that, that can be utilized uh, by them. Yeah. And, you get the party to go slay some, some giants, and then you raise the giants from the dead as skeletons. Yes, exactly. Now you have And then you find some zombies. way to enchant these so that if you kill the giant skeleton, it doesn't die in specific Right. So now because <laughs> fuck. Yes. Now you are in trouble. Uh I, I do I do like the idea of just like dire wolves or anything like that, and they're just like they're keeping them like locked away in case there's trouble, and then the doors swing open and all of these zombie like like skeleton dogs come at you or skeleton bats, and now you're just flooded with all of these creatures that are just bones and anger. That's all they are, just bones and anger. So. Yeah, I like the idea of skeletons that have either flesh or rotting flesh hanging off them. Uh, I really like the idea of skeletons when I did it. The ship captain was a skeleton uh, several hundred years after they had found him again. Yeah. And he had, you know, he'd been asleep in his chair, kind of slumped over as a skeleton. Just they don't sleep, they rest, whatever. Mm -hmm. So he'd kind of been sleeping, like, eyes closed, you know, kind of inert. And then when they came into the room... His eyes lit up with, like, bale fire. Nice. So just, like, blue flames in them. Ahead of you, you just see flickering green lights, like, pairs of them all over. And you, like, hold up the lantern, and you just see, like, 
20 or 25 skeletons with swords and shields and the, the flickering as their eyes are, are flames. Oh, good. So now I just have bones and fire in front of me. Uh, well, I guess on that note, spoopy rating, uh, skeletons as written, I give one out of five spoops. Uh, I think our version sure. is probably closer to maybe a four, uh, on, on that scale. Yeah, I, w I would say a three or four, uh, for our version, uh, depending what you use as your basis for a skeleton and how you use them. Um... I would like to know what other people do to spice up their skeletons. Yeah, um, I think that my favorite concept here, though, is the idea of essentially the the living dead, but really being used more as the puppets, like the skeletons actually being used as puppets for some nefarious purpose. Uh, yeah. and, and that you're seeing, like, people that were once alive, maybe people that you knew, but now they're just basically... Uh, skin and flesh on top of a bone structure that is now just being controlled with purpose against yeah. you. Yeah. That would be very unnerving once you that the people you've been protecting, dealing with, seeing every day. Yes. Are really just bone flesh puppets. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And when it starts to be like you 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 cut in and the bones keep moving independent yeah. of, the, of all of that. It's like, it. but I went on a date with Maria last night. You didn't tell me about that. Well, you don't speak, so I guess that kind of makes sense. I thought she was just mute and cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, you know, I've dated kind of frigid people before, but, you know, I didn't know it was going to be exactly like this. Still, top five dates. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like that as, like, the Tinder profile. It's like, still still swiping right. I feel like the thumbnail for this now needs to have, like, a phone with a, a skeleton. Skeleton hand profile. Of the Tinder. <laughs> We can call it, like, Splinter or something. No, 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 you know what? We, we call it the Bone Zone. <laughs> Sorry. Great. That's <laughs> gonna be... That's in the thumbnail. <laughs> yeah, the it's thumbnail. in the bone... Yeah. go explain that. It's just a skeleton hand just, just swiping right on Bone Zone. <laughs> just... Yeah, well, don't worry. I'm gonna go explain this to our brain director, and Terrific. she's gonna laugh, and she's gonna be able to make that. The name of this segment is gonna be Swipe Right on Skeletons. <laughs> I think that that's um, where we got to end this episode of Total Battle Knockdown. Yes. Um, so, Alex, uh, if uh, people would like to swipe right on our content, where could they go? Please do. Go to totalpebblenockdown.com. Yeah, you can find all of our content over there. Uh, please click on the Patreon banner. We do early releases of a lot of this content and also some of the uh, unedited footage that you normally don't get oh. in the... Well, Still a little bit edited because, you know, apparently just, my Wi-Fi here want to stay stable. Uh, yeah, no, it's still, uh, you know, the, the main show comes out, like, in its full release beforehand. Uh, but then also you get some of the additional stuff that we do off-air. You get that, you get some of the early releases of the other content that we do, some special stuff that we don't usually release to the public. And while you're there, you can also check out, uh, I don't know... Titanium Mines on this website. Uh, we have a uh, Creatures up right now. Go and check that it's out. Another one in the works. 
There's another one in the works, so there's something fun. And uh, if you listen to us on any of the podcast apps that are out there, please make sure to rate and review and subscribe where it is necessary. And if you are on Anchor, please leave us a voice clip. We might use it on the show if you have any topics you'd like us to cover. If you're one of our 60-plus listeners, please let us know. Apparently that's our major demographic. 60-plus, hey. Well, the old-school gamers indeed. Um, anyway... Uh, you can also find us on the social media. I am at Citanium. I am at EXP Limited, and our show is over at Pebble Knockdown. Yeah, so check us out over there. And uh, with that, I think we're going to get our old bones out of here and uh, jangle right along. <laughs> bones jingle, jangle. Jingle. <laughs> Mr. Bones jangling. <laughs> Something in this episode was probably problematic. I don't know what it was, but everything, every single thing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you for joining us on this. Uh, and then, hey, next week we get to have the spookiest monster as well as a celebration of our one year anniversary with our 52nd episode. So, ooh, fun. Check that out. Ooh, the spookiest thing is realizing that you've done nothing with your life. Anyway, thank you for joining us. We will see you on the next one. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. I love the fact that when you did the woo, it cut out again. I I don't understand. just need a red light bulb. I have a black light, but I don't think that would be helpful. Oh, not unless you're having, like, a black, uh, like, clothing that will show up, you know? Or the, uh, one that the, uh, deontologists are going to have a real hard time with, which is where you can switch the track, and it will not hit anybody, but then it curves back around and still hits one other person (laughs) that was going to already get hit in the first place. See, that's the real answer, is you put the switch in the middle and hope the train derails.